John chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. We're going to look at 12 through 22. We've been journeying through the book of John this year. We're already in chapter 2, only 21 chapters to go. Okay, 20 chapters to go. Because, you know, it's Memorial Day weekend, and of course the ubiquitous symbol of Memorial Day is what? It's the American flag, of course, all right? So we'll, we'll give you a little, little imagery here. And it's a time where we obviously remember those who have given their lives, those who've paid the ultimate sacrifice. And by the way, if you have served in the military, we thank you. Okay, thank you for, for your relatives and family members who've sacrificed to make, to make that happen. But what's amazing, though, is how this ubiquitous symbol, the American flag, can generate such a variety of different reactions and responses depending upon who you are and what the context is. So when we think about these flags on Normandy Beach, in D-Day in, in France, not that one, that would be the protesters' flag. All right, let's, let's go with that one. For some people, the, 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 the American flag evokes images of hurt and pain and 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 grievances, okay? It, it, it can do that for people. For some, let's go to the next one. It can evoke images of, of look, glory and national pride. And there's Michael Johnson carrying the American flag um, after, after winning the, the, the 200 meters in the Olympics. Um, let's go to the, the one now of Normandy Beach. And this is France, if we have it or if we don't. Maybe not. It's okay. All right. No, not, let's, let's get off the protesters, please. All right, we'll leave it right there. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a symbol that can evoke a variety of different responses depending upon the context, depending upon who you are, whether you're remembering the dead or protesting or, or national pride. And we're going to look at a similar sort of symbol in the book of John this morning, and it's the, it's the symbol of the temple in the Old Testament. Okay, and you can take that. There we go. And, and, and that's a picture of the Old Testament temple. And you can leave that up there, just kind of give you a, a little bit of background here. But remember, when the Israelites were journeying in the wilderness, and, and there wasn't a temple there was only a tent, a tabernacle of meeting where sacrifices were offered and people would come to worship God. And when they settled into the promised land, it was David who said, I want to build a temple for the Lord, not a tent. I want a permanent structure. And, and, Dave, and, and God said, David, it's, it's, it's not for you to do. You can help your son prepare, but it's going to be Solomon's temple that's built. And so when Solomon's temple was, was built... And if you see the little area here in the middle of the temple, that was probably about the size of the original temple under Solomon. And that, and that temple represented God's presence, his holiness, his riches, his, his majesty. It was a point of, 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 natural, of, of national communion as God's chosen people with him. But Babylon came, and we studied this under, in the book of Daniel, and destroyed that temple and burned it to the ground. And all of a sudden, the, temp, the temple was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of, of sin and brokenness and, and a broken covenant with God. Until finally, remember, the, 
Israelites returned from captivity 70 years later and rebuilt the temple under, under Zerubbabel. And there was a, there was a, it was a great uh, praise and rejoicing as the temple was rebuilt, but was also mourning. Why? Because they said the temple compared to the temple under Solomon was just, it was just a shadow of what it remained. But all that changed in regards to the temple during the intertestamental period. That was a time from Malachi all the way up to John the Baptist, that 400-year window. A man named Herod the Great came on the scene. And, and for many reasons, he, was, he, was, he, he, had a, he had a Jewish wife and he wanted to curry favor with the Jewish. Remember, Herod was a, a vassal king of the Roman Empire, which ruled everything now. And he said, as a way to curry favor, I'm going to, to make this temple one of the grandest structures in the world. And in fact, that's exactly what he did. And so taking that original structure, which is right there in the middle, okay, which was the original temple, he built this massive temple complex. It was huge. It was magnificent. It drew visitors, tourists of that day, literally from all over the world. Remember in the, in the, in the, in the Gospels, the disciples will be walking, walking along and they'll say, Jesus, look at this thing. This is, this is pretty amazing. And so by the time that we get to the New Testament and Jesus is on the scene, the temple has become much more than simply a religious symbol. It has become a, a nationalistic symbol. It, it, it symbolizes this idea that one day the Messiah is going to return and he is going to set up shop in the temple and he is going to rule and he is going to overthrow these blasted Romans. And, and it represented hope. It represented this future millennium. And so into this vortex in John 2, Jesus steps. And it's the Passover, which is the busiest, most magnificent holiday of the entire Jewish season. And, and now this is interesting. Remember, Jesus has just revealed himself to his disciples in, the, in, the, in John chapter 2 in the, in the making of the, wine into, of the water into wine. We studied this last week. And this was not so much a public miracle. It was a time for him to reveal himself to his disciples so that they would believe. Well, now this is going to be the first opportunity that Jesus has to reveal himself publicly. And it's no coincidence that he goes right to the heart of Judaism. And he goes right to the heart of that, of that nationalistic symbol of, of national pride and of national worship. And he's going to make a statement about the nature of spiritual life and faith and worship and ultimately our relationship with God. There's going to be a call for us as the, as the people of God to watch our worship. And that's the title of this sermon this morning. So I'm going to invite us all to stand and we're going to pray. We're going to read this text together. We're going to flash it on the screen for you. Verse, beginning at verse 12. After this, he, meaning Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've done something much more significant than to come and give us a lesson of how to take care of a physical building. Lord, you've come to restore us to right relationship with the true temple, Jesus Christ, who, who now resides with his people, lives with his people, has dwelt with his people, has made his presence with his people. And because of that, Lord, we, we ought, as your people, to be concerned about how we worship you, how we approach you, how we relate to you, how we engage you. So, Lord, as we unpack this passage, we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us a fresh vision for what it means to watch our worship, where we ask for your help now in your son's name. Amen. Please take your seats. Three kind of angles to this passage, okay? So, so three sorts of ways or different perspectives we're going to look at these verses from. The first is this, what happens? So we're just going to kind of unpack what, what's going on here. Number two, why does it matter? Why does this matter to Jesus? And why, does, why should it matter to us? And then thirdly, who is this about? Ultimately, what's truly at stake in this confrontation? So let's go to verse 13. The Passover is at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, interestingly enough, Jerusalem at this time was probably somewhere around a quarter of a million people. Now, interesting, also interestingly enough, the, the, the greater Leon County area is about a quarter of a million people, give or take, okay? But we are all spread out. Here in Jerusalem, they are packed in like sardines. Now, normally, we, you know, when there's an FSU football game, 12, 12 Saturdays, ladies, just want you to know, we're, not that we're counting or anything, but 12, okay? For FSU football, tens of thousands more people from all over the state descend upon Tallahassee to sort of in, intermingle with the quarter of a million that are already here. And we know how crazy that gets, right? I mean, like, and, and the hub of activity is Doak Campbell Stadium, and you got the vendors and everyone's around buying and selling tickets and tailgating and all those good things. And it's crazy. Estimates are that Jerusalem, which had about a quarter of a million people, upwards of one million people would pack themselves into that little area during Passover. Five times the amount that we might see come in for a football game. Ten times the amount. And what was the central hub of activity? It was where? The temple. It was the, it was the place where sacrifices were made. 
It was the place where there was all this religious fervor and excitement and even angst. Because remember, um, when we saw the picture a, a minute ago of the temple area, there was a praetorium section that housed the Roman guard. And they were there on site in this religious place because if anything, if any sort of rebellion broke out, if any sort of uprising happened among the Jewish people, as it had many times before previously, it was going to happen at the temple. And so, so, so as people came, and there were, there were literally tens and tens of thousands of people milling around with this fervor, you could just sort of feel the, the buzz in the air. What, what is going to happen? And, and part of what was, what was supposed to happen is that travelers would come, the Jewish people would come, and they would, and they would bring their gifts, or their animals' um, sacrifices to offer up as their offering as part of Passover. But for those travelers who had to come from a long, long way away, okay, um, it wasn't really convenient to bring their animals. So what they would do is they would come and they would purchase their animals at the Temple Mount site. Let's go to the second picture of the, of the temple for just for a second. So that's a close-up rendering of what this was like. So there's the temple in the middle. You see the colonnades that surround the temple all along the side. And you see these areas in the front, to the side, to the side, and to the, there's a corresponding area in the back. This was called the Court of the Gentiles. And this is where if you were a Gentile and you wanted to worship God and you were a proselyte and you'd been converted to the Jewish faith, you could come and worship but there were certain places that you could not go. And, and they called this the court of the Gentiles. And, and it seems that it was in this court area, and you can see how massively large this is. This is where they bought and sold animals. This is where they bought and sold sacrifices. Um, they had to have a currency exchange because people coming from all over the, all over the, the, the scattered world, you know, whether they were coming from Greece or from Italy, these Jews, or from other parts of Asia Minor, they had their own currency, but they had to trade it in for the Jewish currency in order to purchase their sacrifices. Imagine kind of being in a third world market emporium. Okay? Um, we just watched a movie um, last night um, called Lion, and it was set in, in India. And, and you, see these, you see these markets, these, these bazaars where people are peddling their wares and it's sort of chaos all around. I remember going to Singapore when I was in college on a mission trip and, and having one of these rice patty hats thrust into my hands, which I bought, but which would not fit on in my suitcase, so which I had to wear on the airplane, okay? Now, 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 granted, I did go looking for that rice paddy hat on my own, but that's a whole other story. So, so imagine this sort of scene. You can take that down now. That's what Jesus walks into. And look down at the, at the text. What does Jesus do? Oh, this is interesting. Verse 15. It said he made a whip of cords, okay? So, so obviously to to get that many animals. And guys, we're talking hundreds of animals, probably thousands of animals, money changers. This is, this, is, this is craziness that's surrounding all of this. Jesus takes these, these cords, probably they're laying around, they use to tie up animals and bring them along and to feed them. And he makes a whip or a leash or lashes and he begins to drive them out of there. 
He begins to drive, drive the animals out of there. He drives the money changers out of there. He, he's overturning the tables. He's, he's letting the animals loose. And, and, you know, we can tend to underestimate the sheer force of nature and willpower that it would have taken to do this, okay? This was not a lemonade stand, okay? This was not a petting zoo. I mean, this is a massive thing. John MacArthur has gone as far to say this, in fact, in itself was a miracle. And he might be right. I'm not, I'm not sure. But here is Jesus driving out people and animals. He's, over, he's clearly overpowering people physically. It was an extraordinary display. And by the way, Jesus, um, the, the, the other Gospels narrate this same event, but it seems to happen at the end of Jesus' ministry, and that causes a lot of people consternation, and which is true. It's just very clear. It's most likely, the, the most obvious answer is the correct one. This happened twice in Jesus' ministry. You see, at the end of Jesus' ministry, three years from now, he does this again, and what happens? They said, kill him. Take him by force. Okay, this is the last straw. We've seen this guy do this before, but not this time. <laughs> they are so stunned. They don't know what's happening. Remember, people had never seen this man. People, had ne- had, people didn't know what to speak. It was just sort of a, a stunned sort of observation of this raw power. And here he is, and that's what Jesus is doing. And in the middle of it, he's saying, and look down at, look down at your text. He's saying, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or an emporium. Now we have to ask, what would send Jesus, and I don't think it's stretching the text to say this is a righteous rage, okay? This is not kinder, gentler Jesus who says, excuse me, can I, can I suggest something about your trade here? Can I suggest something about your animals? Can you move those a little further away from the temple mount, please? No, 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 no. This is a righteous rage. And we have to ask, why does this matter so much to him? And when we understand why it matters so much to him, we can understand why it matters to us. So second point, why does it matter? Again, verse 16. Jesus says, you've made my house, my father's house, this temple area, a house of trade, a bazaar, an emporium. Now, let me say a couple things. On one hand, this was a very necessary service, okay, that that the Jewish authorities were providing on one hand. I mean, people were traveling hundreds, if not thousands of miles. It was completely impractical for them to carry uh, our, their, their sheep or their goat or, you know, their other sacrifices. And so there had to be a place for this to happen. And, you know, and, and granted, it had the potential to be exploitive, to be mercenary, to be confiscatory. This was a simple thing of supply and demand. If there was nowhere else to buy these things, where would you get them, right? So, we were in Orlando driving around Lake Buena Vista one time. And have you noticed this? It's really sneaky. A couple of the gas stations that are kind of hanging around Disney Springs, okay? And if you're not careful, you will get gas at some place that charges five bucks a gallon. Has anybody made that mistake? Or was it just me that it took $125 to fill up my tank? Anyway, 
So, so, so there could definitely be some of that going on here. But I think it's not merely the activity that Jesus is concerned with. Okay? I think it's the effect that this activity had on people's perception and practice of worship. Now, now remember, the court of the Gentiles. There was always a vision, if you go back in the pages of the Old Testament, for the nations to come and worship at the temple of God. Okay, Even though the Jewish people oftentimes missed it, God did not originally design in, in, from the beginning that, that, that Judaism would be a sectarian religion only for ethnic Jews. In fact, he told Abraham, who was the first Jew, what did he tell Abraham? I will bless all the nations through you. And, and, and so what I'm doing is I'm starting a little colony of the kingdom here in the nation of Israel. And it's going to grow and expand this kingdom. And ultimately, it's going to display the worth and glory and power of God to all the nations. And so, so to set up this court of the Gentiles what, what was a way to begin in, to incorporate people into this grand global faith. But because the, the money changers were there, because the, they, they were selling their, their animals in their emporium, they were in effect hindering people coming to the Lord. They were, they were effectively shutting out the worship of people who would want to come to know him. It was, it was a non-starter for them. See, it's important to distinguish here Jesus' concern for the temple or a building per se and his concern for the people in that building. Okay, this is important. There's ways that we can misapply this text. When, you know, growing up, I went to First Press Chattanooga, and our fellowship hall, I kid you not, had to be a replica of a funeral parlor. Okay, do you know what I'm saying? Okay, the big thick shag carpet and the stately furniture. And whoever designed this clearly did not want people to enjoy themselves there, okay? So there was all sorts of rules, no running through the place. By all means, do not bring food, do not bring drink, okay? Don't even raise your voice. This is God's house, right? We've got to be good stewards and take care of it. Forgetting that, you know what? It's just a building. And when the apocalyptic fires of judgment come to consume, it will probably consume that place first. Not first, okay, but it will consume it. Guys, we have to remember, okay, that's not the big takeaway lesson here. Lest we be too proud of this building, remember you were worshiping in the frozen food aisle as we speak, right? Okay, that, that, that's where you are. This was, a, this was a grocery store. And guys, we see this lesson over and over and over again, right? God doesn't dwell in a house made by hands, okay? So, so, so the wrong sort of application would be to say, well, you know, do we sell things here in the church? Okay, do we have electronic giving? Do we, you know, uh, this is the house, Lord. No, 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 that, that's, Jesus is not concerned with the heart of the building here. He's more concerned about the hearts of the people in the building. He said, my doors are open wide to come and know me and worship me. But it can't happen because you were so consumed with the worship of money and the worship of self. 
And look back at the text. I just want to point out something to you, how concerned Jesus is. All of the words, beginning in verse 13, communicate this intentional, purposeful, direct action by Jesus. Listen to these commands. It says, he went up. It says, he found. He made a whip. He drove them out. He poured out. He was commanding, take these away. Do not make. Do do, do you see the force of this passage? Everything is in the imperative. Commands, intentionality. In other words, Jesus is not just sort of moseying around the temple area. And he happens to stumble upon these people doing this selling and saying, hmm, should I say something to, to, these, to, to these mates of mine? Should I do that? It's kind of like when you go to a movie at AMC and somebody's kicking your chair and you say, man, do I say something or not? Okay, do I really want to get shot in this theater? Okay, is that really what I'm doing? Remember, Jesus had seen this before where? When he was 12 years old and he was sitting in the house, his father's house, and he was instructing and, and, and asking questions of the religious leaders of the day. No, no, no. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, he went there for this specific purpose. And later the disciples were able to, to, to say, oh yeah, this is kind of like what David talks about in Psalm 69. And he quotes Psalm 69 here. What does it say in verse 17? Zeal for your house will consume me. What does the word zeal mean? It's, not, it's not, one, not, not a word we use as often as we once did. I didn't, I kind of knew, but I really didn't know, so I looked it up. Zeal, an intense emotion that compels action. I want you to think about that. Intense emotion that compels action. You see, Jesus went there to do whatever it took to protect hearts, to create unbroken fellowship and communion with God. Jesus is making a statement loud and clear here. Remember what he says about the little children? Do not hinder the little children from coming to me. Do not hinder the Gentiles. Do not hinder the nations. Do not hinder my people from coming to worship me. So what does this look like for us? What, what, are, what are you and I supposed to take away from this? Because on one hand, we say, Pastor Paul, does this mean i got to go preach out at the mall at AMC and overturn all those ridiculous kiosks okay, that are a shrine to materialism? Is that what it means? Does it mean showing up at your kid's classroom, protesting, turning over desks, the shrines to secular humanism, and your child is saying, please, Mom, no, 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 not, please not. Does it, mean, does it mean picketing your work? Does it, mean, does it mean sort of looking for any and every way to exterminate those things that are sort of an affront or an offense to, God, to the worship of God? And I would say, no, that's, that's, that's not the point of this passage. The problem with this approach is twofold. First, I, and, and I don't know if you need a reminder about this, but you and I, we are not Jesus, okay? Which means we do not see into people's hearts. See, the, the passage next week is going to tell us that Jesus knew what was in men. He knew their hearts. He knew what motivated them. And that's a great lesson for us sometimes. 
that, that we, we are so prone to want to make judgments about people and what they're doing based upon what we assume to be true about their hearts. Be very careful. Be very careful. Ultimately, we entrust people to Jesus who is the only one who knows the heart. So first, we're not Jesus. But second, I think it misses the real point here. You see, the, the, the real point, the greatest hindrances to worship were not just animals and money changers at this time. And, 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 the, and the greatest hindrance to our worship is not so much what is out there for Oaks. The greatest hindrance to our worship is found right here. See, we're about to enter the summer season, and, and let me just say, I, I love summer, okay? They should write a little song about that and Frozen. Anyway, anyway, I love summer. I love the cookouts. I love the barbecue. I love the swim, the beach. And believe it or not, I love the 80s karaoke, but that's a poll for another time. You, you, you might even say, I have a zeal for the summer season. But what we have to ask is, what would it look like to bring a spiritual zeal to these next 12 weeks of my life and of your life? What would it look like to bring the zeal of Jesus and to say, Jesus, whatever is hindering my worship of you, See, that's the real lesson here. Whatever is standing in the way, I want it to be gone. Or I, I, I want to know you in your power. I want to know you in your resurrection. The summer is not a time for checking out of communion with you. In fact, guys, we need the Lord in the summer probably more than almost any other time. See, here, here's a pastor's plea for us. Have a spiritual zeal this summer. Don't, don't check out spiritually. Um, run hard after your relationships with the people of God. Guard, guard your, your times with, with God's people. Guard your times in his word. Guard your times in prayer. Guard your time with God's people. Okay, I don't know what that looks like for you. We're at the Gilberts. We're, we're traveling. We're seeing family and friends. We're doing all those things, going to the beach just like you, and we ought to do them, and I'm thankful that we're doing them. But is my heart in doing them to have a spiritual zeal to protect my worship and my communion of Christ? See, I think there's a real call here by Jesus to watch our worship. Last point, who's it about? Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So in other words, by what authority are you cleaning house in God's house? In other words, and to use some of our language, who are you and what in the heck do you think you're doing? Okay, what, what, what's going on here? Give us a sign at least to show us. And, and, and here's the point, listen to this. They missed the sign. They missed the sign. The sign was the clearing of the temple. Jesus has come to call people to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
But Jesus kind of riddles them, and he says, give, they said, give us a sign, and look what he says. He says, destroy this temple, verse 19, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they think he's speaking primarily of the physical temple, and this idea that it took 46 years to construct, remember that the temple complex was under constant construction from the time of the, from Herod the Great, which was 46 years prior to this, and, and continued on another 30 years all the way up to when Jerusalem was destroyed. So this was a massive building complex, and they think he's talking about this physical building. I don't think that's what Jesus really means here. I think there's a couple of meanings. First, I think it's very clear he's saying, you know what, guys? Through your vain religiosity, through your corrupt hearts, you are the ones destroying the temple. I I don't receive your worship. And because of that, I am going to take away this place of worship. And we know this temple was destroyed by the way, never to be reconstructed 2,000 years since. Destroyed in 70 AD. Some of you have been to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. It's, just a, it's a small part of the lower base of the wall that remains. It's all that remains. And Jesus says, this, this thing you've erected is really just, a, it's just about you. and It's a temple to yourself and the worship of yourself and the worship of money and fame and affluence. And because of that, you are destroying the temple, and I will take it down. And he did. But number two, he's saying, by rejecting your own Messiah, you are destroying this temple. And it says, by this he meant, he was referring to his body. And he says, three days again, and I will raise it up. He said, that will be my sign to you of who I am. You want to know why I do this, on what authority I do this? I do this because as the Son of God, I'm going to die. I'm going to sacrifice my temple for yours. And, by, and when I am raised from the grave after three days, I will prove that I am who I've said that I am. You see, Christianity is no longer about a place. Christianity is about a person. Jesus is our new temple. What does John tell us in John chapter 1? The word became flesh and what? Dwelled among us. And Jesus is saying, and we'll learn this in John chapter 4, those who come to worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about a person. It's not about a place. It's about a person. John Piper says it this way. This is in in Jesus' words. I am the new temple. When I raise my body from the dead, everywhere in all the world, people may come to John, may come to God through me. This church building is not the temple of God, Jesus is. When Jesus died for us and rose from the dead, he replaced the temple with himself. That's the proper application for us, for Oaks. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know this person who has come to destroy religiosity and vain sacrifice and to replace himself? He has come and dwelt among us. And look at verse 22. It says, characteristically, they don't understand the disciples. Only later do they understand and come to believe. 
Now look at, look, at, look at how it tells us this happened. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. I want you to think about this for a second. It's amazing. That here the disciples are. They are reflecting back years later on this incident. And they are pouring over their Old Testaments. They're pouring over them. And God brings to their minds, Psalm 69, zeal for my house consumes me. Like, oh yeah. The Old Testament, it was speaking about Jesus. And then they would go back and they would go through the words of Jesus. What would later become our New Testament, what John himself is writing here, and they're thinking, oh yeah, Jesus is our temple. Jesus is dwelling with us. The Word has become flesh. He's tabernacled among us. He lives among us. And because of that, we want to watch our worship. We want to guard our communion. We want to, we want to worship Him in spirit and in truth. He has made His presence with us. For Oaks of Summer, I pray as your pastor that all of us would come to taste and see anew that Jesus is good. That, that, that Christianity is bound up not in a place, but in a person. And so wherever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you're traveling to, remember God's Spirit dwells in you. God's Spirit dwells in me. Everything in the earth belongs to him and we as his people. So let's watch our worship. Let's think on Jesus. and Let's pray that God will allow us to know him better this season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that through your grace, we would have a zeal, a spiritual fervor for knowing you this season these next weeks. Lord, we pray that this would not be a time to, to, to check out. It would be time to plug in, to know you, to know you through your word, to come before you, to meditate upon you, to taste and see that you are good. Lord, we need you these weeks as much as we ever need you. So go with us now. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Guys, as we conclude our service, there's no better way to kick off our summer than to celebrate with those who have had their hearts awakened to Jesus, who have a spiritual zeal for him and are ready to say, I know the God-man. I direct your attention to the screen as we watch together. My name is Sarah Machado. I am going into the ninth grade. My parents are Ron and Laura Machado, and I go to Community Christian School. I grew up in the church. I was always around here, and I was being taught God's Word my whole life. Uh, the thing I struggled with was giving God my life completely and giving up everything, giving up worldly idols and distractions that um, drew me away from Him. And as I got older, I realized I needed someone all-knowing and all-loving to direct my paths and to teach me. 
as I got older, I started to understand more of what it meant to be a Christian. And school got harder, and relationships got harder. And I, I realized that I needed God. I just couldn't do it on my own anymore. So one night, I prayed, and I gave my life to, wholly to God. I really started to see God work uh, when I entered middle school. Um, friendship problems and schoolwork, and it was all just stressing. But he taught me to be a light to others, and, and I was able to trust him in everything. God was my guide all through middle school, helping me through problems and everything that I needed him to help me with. I also really started to memorize large chunks of scripture um, that God had showed me when I prayed, and I, sh I wanted to share them with other people because they affected me in such a great way, and I wanted uh, it to affect them as the same way it had. And one of the verses that I learned when I was little that helped me to glorify Christ in everything that I do is 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Because of all this, I am here today to make a public profession of my faith um, to Christ through baptism. Sarah, you were a wee little tyke when we first got to know you. And um, it's been an amazing testimony of God's grace to see him begin this work in you and now bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. So, Sarah, let me ask you two questions. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I am. And why do you want to be baptized? As a public profession of my faith and to glorify God. Excellent. Um, your father, Ramashado, is here. Your grandfather, um, we are standing, they're here standing with you. So it's a great privilege to be able to, to, to baptize you. We want to do that now. Sarah Machado, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, my name is Slade Machado. Uh, my parents are Ron and Laura Machado. It probably hasn't really hit me yet, but I will be a senior at Community Christian School next year. I grew up in a church, this, this church in particular. I distinctly remember uh, meeting at CCS, Childs, and now at this location. Uh, so this church has been a huge part in becoming the person I am today. Grew up in a Christian home. If there's one thing I didn't lack, it was certainly a spiritual inpouring. Uh, my parents are always faithful in helping me to learn a spiritual lesson and point me towards God. I always knew the Bible stories. I knew about Jesus, and I, I believed it to be true, um, but I don't think it really ever hit me uh, until about fifth grade that it required action on my part to be a follower of Christ. I'd always knew everything, and I, I decided I wanted to believe it, but I didn't really feel the weight that it required me to do something. Until in fifth grade, I had a really amazing teacher, Mrs. Stone, um, and one of the things that she just always pushed us to do was to fall head over heels in love with Jesus Christ. And that just, that blew my mind. Um, and seeing her relationship with Christ uh, and how she poured into us as students um, was incredible. And it really made me want to take action. And I went through a hard time then in fifth grade of getting caught in sins, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever it was. I just always would find me out. And Miss Stone was one of the ones that did the finding. Um, and so she really poured into my life in that way. And I realized that this was something that needed to change. And um, 
I had the resources right there because God had given me that open door. And so I decided I wanted to follow Jesus, to repent of my sins, uh, to give my life to him. And that summer at Camp Karis, which has also been a huge uh, inpouring into my life, I discovered a Bible verse, which to this day is my very favorite. Um, and that's Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And since then, God's just been doing an incredible work. Um, I've struggled and I've been knocked down, but God's always uh, helped me to get back up. And most recently, junior year was an incredibly hard one. I faced a lot of struggles, um, and I really had to be with God or I would not have gotten through them intact. And I think one of the things God has been laying on my heart most recently is to pursue a relationship of love with everyone I interact with and then to do the same in my relationship with Him. Uh, that loving God is extremely important and so is loving all of the people around me, my parents, my friends, my family, those that sin against me, because that's what Jesus did and what He called us to do in the same way. And because of all this, today I want to make my public profession of my faith in Christ by being baptized. Like two questions before the two questions. Okay, first of all, you recognize that Mrs. Stone was really the Holy Spirit. Okay, you, you understand oh, yeah. that? Okay, good, okay. Let's make sure. And number two, do you do you know this girl over here? I, I think so. Okay, good, good, good. Because one of the one of the really cool things um, that I love about the family of God is seeing families within the family of God. That um, this is kind of like one of those Acts 16 household baptisms. I don't know if Ron and Laura, you're going to be joining us in here later, but. Just to see God's spirit grab hold of those relationships and nurture them within the family. We, we celebrate that, Ron and Laura. It has been a great privilege to walk alongside of you in that. And so it's a great privilege to baptize you. So, so are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I am. And why do you want to be baptized? I want to profess publicly my faith in Christ um, and to give him the glory for everything he's done in my life. And it's our great privilege to, to be able to baptize you today. So we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's celebrate what God has done in Sarah and Slade's life.